I think it's quite important for me not to present myself as an as a economist. I think that would be strongly resented. I'm a psychologist. This is Daniel Kahneman, the world-famous Israeli psychologist who 2002 was awarded the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel for his work in behavioral economics. Daniel Kahneman is probably one of the most influential and best-known psychologists of our time. He is known for his work on the psychology of decision-making and judgment under uncertain circumstances. Daniel Kahneman began his fascination for human psychology at a young age. Even though he was interested in big philosophical questions like the meaning of life and the existence of God, he also soon realized that his real interest was in what made people believe in God rather than if God actually existed. Actually, at the age of 10, I wrote an essay, which I'm still quite proud of, about the psychology of religion that the rituals of religion are meant to create, to recreate an emotional state of awe, which is a state of faith. It was clearly a young psychologist trying his voice. So yes, I, I was uh, clearly a budding psychologist from a young age. You are listening to Nobel Prize Conversations, and I'm Fanny Harjestam, one of the producers of the show. This episode is featuring Daniel Kahneman, who in his studies of behavioral economics have shown how people make decisions under uncertainty. Daniel Kahneman is also the author of the best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow. The central thesis of the book, which is also a summary of Kahneman's work, is that human decision-making is divided into two modes of thought. One being fast, instinctive and emotional thinking, and the other one being a slow, more deliberate and rational way of thought. This episode takes place under the burning corona crisis, which brings a new context to Kahneman's research on how uncertainty affects our decision-making and judgment. This podcast series is brought to you with the support of Riksbanken, Sweden's central bank. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer of Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. Like many others, Daniel Kahneman has during this coronavirus crisis been placed under quarantine and lockdown. When Adam Smith calls him on video link, Daniel Kahneman is sitting in his apartment in New York. Where exactly are you at the moment? I'm uh, in my living room. In your apartment in the, on the west side in New York? East side. East side, okay, sorry. <laughs> they are now beginning to release lockdown in New York, but have you been observing lockdown? Oh, yes. Everybody does. You know, we're in a large building and... Uh, the instructions are quite strict. Um, masks in the elevator, of course. No, we're locked down. And, but presumably, you've been extremely busy on all sorts of advisory panels during this time. No, uh, the only advisory panel I was on was with the Royal Society, actually. But uh, no other one. I'm surprised. Well, 
What do you think the role of psychologists is in general during this corona crisis? Well, I think there are many behavioural aspects. There are many aspects of compliance and how to communicate findings to the population, both to keep people properly worried, neither complacent nor terrified. And there may be a role, I think, to the extent that people have to go into lockdown again, there are going to be complexities in getting that done. And I think that behavioural aspects will, will loom larger. Do you think in general governments, your government, governments around the world have been using the advice of behavioural scientists well? Well, I think they're increasingly asking for advice. Whether they're using it and whether they're using it well, I don't know. But I think behavioural scientists, and psychologists in particular, feel, feel quite well about themselves in that context. I mean, in some ways it puts the scientists in a difficult position because government tends, at least here in the UK, government always says it's acting on the advice of scientists, which rather puts the onus on scientists who have made the right decision and possibly shifts blame onto scientists. I mean, I suppose the question is, how do scientists best protect themselves when giving advice to government on something as important as this? You know, this is going to be different depending on the specific context. I think the National Academy, the Royal Society, is very conscious of it. They do honest science and they publish what they do. Not immediately, but fairly soon. And that's the best they can do. So the advice they give is not secret. That's the best way they can protect themselves, I think. So the other big crisis going on right at the moment as we speak is this um, outpouring of feeling around the question of racial discrimination which is happening everywhere in the world. What have you learnt about racism and discrimination in your life, either from your childhood or from, your, or from a professional standpoint? Well, you know, I was a Jew in Europe during World War II, so I had experiences of wearing a yellow star, of having my father picked up, but those are extreme experiences. The sort of most subtle discrimination that that occurs in everyday life, and, and the existence of stereotypes, is a, a psychologically very interesting problem. Because, at least in my view, and I, it's not a very popular view, I think it's not fully politically correct. But in my view, stereotypes are very difficult to resist. So stereotyping is I think, more inevitable than, than usually assumed. And uh, that stereotyping is considered bad by itself. So now it seems to me that people feel guilty for having impure thoughts, uh, which they cannot help but have. So I, I think it's a, com- it's a complicated story. Are you hopeful that things can change, or do you think the stereotypes are so deeply ingrained? Things clearly can change. The change about gay and gay life in my lifetime has been astonishing. Whether stereotypes can change, that is, attitudes can change. Stereotypes have a grain of truth in them in almost every case. 
and can be a small grain, but they have a grain of truth in them, makes them very resistant to change. On the question of discrimination, how do you think it is best to go about trying to bring a larger selection, a larger diversity of people into your own discipline? What's the best approach? Well, I mean, it, I think it's obvious that some form of affirmative action and massive investment in education is called for. And until that happens and education is truly democratic and equal, I don't think there is much of a substitute to affirmative action. At the higher academic levels, uh, I think this has to be done with a lot of tact so that the people who are hired do not feel... It, it cannot be a label that will go with somebody for the rest of their lives that they've been appointed before, because of affirmative action. So how to deal with that is, I think, a subtle problem, probably very context-dependent. But uh, I think this is on its way to being solved. At the, within academia, we are in a much better shape than other organizations. But the problem you talk about with access to education is something that is really being highlighted now during school lockdowns and digital education. It really shows you that there are haves and have-nots. It's worse than ever in some ways. Oh, yes. I mean, that's clear that the virus is not egalitarian and it hits, it hits the worse off. And this is true for school children. Effectively, the loss of a school year is going to, you know, if social science is right, is going to affect the economic life of these children throughout their lives. I mean, there, there is going to be lost income. There's going to be a loss of competitive power. Uh, this is undoubtedly very serious. Kahneman identifies himself first and foremost as a behavioral psychologist, but he has during his years of research worked very closely with a number of economists. In his academic years at Stanford University, he met the economist Richard Thaler, and they have been good friends ever since. A friendship that has influenced Kahneman's work considerably. Another important friendship and collaboration is with the mathematical psychologist Amos Tversky, with whom Kahneman worked for many years, developing his theories on behavioral economics. You're a psychologist who's good friends with many economists, and, have, and that has been a very creative partnership. Yeah, some of my best friends are economists. Okay, let's talk about friendship a little bit, because um, if, we think, if we start with Amos Tversky, you, your, your, your collaboration, your friendship is legendary. Um, you were, you've often described how you were opposites, or maybe not. Were you opposites? Were you similar? Oh, I think we were certainly more similar than we were different, uh, but we we're different enough so that we had somewhat different skills um, and we could surprise each other, and, and similar enough so that we always understood each other very quickly. So. The formation of such a, a collaborative partnership is a special thing because it requires 
um, it requires something quite special. If you're both very successful and you're both on wonderful tracks, the idea of coming together and realizing that the sum of of one plus one can be greater than two isn't isn't something that's often achieved. What was it that gave you the the inkling that you would be so strong together? I think it's sheer luck. Uh, it's not not anything that you know nobody can do anything about it. You have to like each other. You have to like each other's company, and you have to have a lot of patience because collaboration is slow. And so if you're in a hurry, it doesn't work. But uh, enjoying each other's company, I have found, is uh, absolutely the prerequisite. And I have really liked, if not loved, and in many cases, in some cases, loved all my collaborators, and I've had quite a few. I suppose you, you you probably need to have certain rules about such a collaboration that allows it to survive um, in terms of, for instance, getting credit when things go well. I mean, maybe it's natural, but maybe maybe you need to really concentrate on this. It's easy to adopt rules. You know, who gets seniority on papers? Emerson and I tossed the coin and, and thereafter alternated. So... That was, we did that for many years until we were no longer working so closely together and then we changed. But you have really no control over uh, how others will see the credit in the collaboration. It lasted a long time, but what eventually went wrong? Why did it stop? It stopped for a number of reasons. I mean, the, the primary one was not being physically together. During our best years, we spent maybe six or seven hours a day together. And being physically separated made that much less efficient. Long phone calls at first compensated. And then there were status differences that developed that hadn't existed before. And that created difficulties. We were also quite different in that... um, Amos was native to the area in which we worked, and I was more of a guest. So um, that created a difference. And in the case of Richard Thaler, you, you describe him first as a friend, of course, which is nice, but uh, it's the same? You know, there were never any problems of, uh, of that kind uh, with Richard. It's it is in some ways easier when people are from different disciplines. And, you know, I was obviously older and, and obviously less sophisticated and less knowledgeable in the areas in which we worked. So there were never any problems in our collaboration. And would you advise young people to try and find a friend with whom to collaborate in this way? It's worked for you. I don't think I would give any advice on that. In general, I try to give as little advice as possible. I think, you know, either it happens or it doesn't. If it happens, let it happen. But uh, seeking for it will not help, I think.
Let me ask about you, uh, your childhood. Um, you described, I think, in your Nobel biography that you were intellectually precocious. But give us an example of that precocity. <laughs> uh, actually, at the age of 10, I wrote an essay, which I'm still quite proud of, about the psychology of religion, that the rituals of religion are meant to create, to recreate an emotional state of awe, which is a state of faith. It was clearly a young psychologist trying his voice. So yes, I, I was uh, clearly uh, a budding psychologist from a young age. Yes, that is quite a sophisticated topic for 10. But what a gift to know that you were a psychologist from so young. So many people search for their path. You, your path somehow came ready formed. I think I never doubted that I would be an academic. And I didn't know I would be a psychologist, but it came as no surprise. Where do you think it came from, this idea that this is what you wanted to do? Uh, I give credit to my mother, usually, uh, who, who was a very intelligent gossip. And she found people enormously interesting. And listening to her speak about people was, I think, probably one of the formative experiences of my life. Uh, she wasn't especially kind in her comments, but, but there was an objectivity and an irony uh, that um, was was quite important, I think, in my development. I suppose quite a lot of young people just get annoyed by what their parents have to say to them, but uh, that wasn't the case for you. Well, no, no. I mean, I was plenty annoyed, uh, but I could I could learn. And has listening to people and watching people been your main uh, recreation, your main pastime in life? Well, you know, it's a habit of mind. And the habit of mind, to a large extent, is taking other people's point of view. This is clearly something I do, sometimes to the irritation of my friends, because when my friends are in trouble with other people, I always take the other people's point of view, which I do not get a lot of gratitude quite often. I also do the same to myself, though. I suppose that, in a way, it's the definition of being broad-minded, to be able to put yourself in other people's minds? Not quite the same thing, I think. I think I'm broad-minded differently as more of an acceptance of what people do without caring for why they do it. I suppose I was trying to change the definition a bit, but yes, I think of it the same way. Um, so talking of observing other types of people, this intellectually precocious person found themselves in the Israeli army being a psychologist. I guess that exposed you to all sorts of different ways of thinking. Well, yes, certainly. My best year in the army was actually in the infantry. Uh, but then I was transferred to psychology. And because the state was very young, I was assigned duties that were quite ridiculous for somebody with my training. And that was very good for me. What sort of thing did you find yourself doing? I was involved in, in testing for candidates for officer training. And I learned a great deal from that experience. I learned how easy it is to feel enormous confidence where you shouldn't, how easy it is to form impressions 
of people on the basis of very little information. So a lot of my skepticism about intuition was shaped then and largely from personal experiences. And then I was assigned the task of setting up an interviewing system for the Israeli army. And I was 22 at the time, but I did. It was actually turned out to be very successful. It was used for at least 50 years later. And that was interesting too in the lessons that I learned both about intuition and about how to discipline it. And oddly enough, and this is more than 60 years later, I am now in a book that I'm working on, coming back to some of those ideas. So You never know when, when you'll find things useful again. But 22, setting up an interview system for the army, it's a, the conf, maybe the confidence has never left you, but the confidence of youth is a great thing. Certainly is. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know enough to realize how absurd what I was doing was. And, you know, that I had no business innovating in a field about which I knew nothing. But, you know, I used my common sense. And I had one good book to guide me, a truly important book that had come, uh, had come out a year before I started working, which was influential by a psychologist named Paul Meehl, who showed that people's intuitions are often inferior to very simple formulas. And that theme has been with me for, for the rest of my life. That disinhibition of youth, that, that not worrying about what you don't know, is so important in so many stories of discovery. It's so powerful. I guess it's, it, we're back to the idea of stereotypes again, stereotype, stereotypes of ideas as well. And there is a phenomenon that I, I wrote about that I call theory-induced blindness. That is that when you adopt a theory or a point of view and you know, it organizes a lot of the existing knowledge, it causes you literally not to see obvious things that the theory cannot uh, cover. And that was one of my contributions to the collaboration with Amos Tversky. I frequently contributed my ignorance by not being impressed by impressive theoretical achievements of our predecessors. I was able to ask questions that, uh, and Amos was pretty open-minded, but I could shock him occasionally questioning common wisdom. That lack of awe at the received wisdom comes partly through ignorance, but partly through an attitude, a, a just a, a, a disinclination to believe what you hear, um, an independence, perhaps. It was in the air in Israel, and Israelis are known for their bluntness. The general attitude was, you know, show me. And until you show me, you know, keep your peace. So people were not awed by the authority of others. You could not claim authority. It just wasn't done. And you had to earn respect 
and and you also had not to care too much whether you were respected or not. That's that's fascinating because, of course, you know the success of, for instance, Israeli science has been phenomenal. The situation you described is a particularly Israeli phenomenon. Well, I mean, it is in part a Jewish phenomenon. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not sure how Israeli scientists compared to other Jewish scientists and whether there is any difference. I would think that where you now see it in Israel is more in the domain of engineering and startups and innovation than in the domain of science. When you make discoveries, are they, are they, do they come slowly? Are they slow awakenings or do, are they eureka moments where you see the truth? You know, I've had a very long career, so I've experienced discoveries both ways. Um, there are some that are very gradual and where you discover at a certain point that you're thinking, thinking something that is actually new, and that you've been thinking that way for a while without realizing that it was new. And then there are eureka moments. Those are rare. You know, a lot of the, of the science work that is what makes science fun are small eureka moments. I mean, you know, I was working yesterday. I don't have big eureka moments at my age, but I was... I was working yesterday on a text and found the possibilities that were created by taking two paragraphs and changing their order. You know, that's a eureka moment. Uh, and, and science offers many opportunities for those. Well, looking at your face on this Zoom call and the smile when you think of eureka moments, it shows how pleasurable they are. I guess we all are blessed by them once in a while, but uh, some are bigger than others. Which is the best? Can you re recall the best moment of discovery of your life? But this was when I was instructing air flight instructors, people who form cadets for pilot training in Israel. And, and we had a conversation in which I was trying to tell them that positive reinforcement uh, works better than punishment. And I cited research, including animal research. And then uh, one of the participants came up and said, you know, what, what you just told us is, is for the birds. And, and he said, I've had a lot of occasions to praise people for doing uh, some kind of aerobatic maneuver particularly well. And the next time they tried, they did it worse. And I've had the occasion to punish them and for doing something, for doing a lousy maneuver, and next time they improve. So don't you tell me that punishment doesn't work and reward does. It's the opposite. And actually, I don't think it had been seen before, that in life, uh, you are actually because of chance and because of regression to the mean, you tend to learn that punishment works and that reward doesn't. Because your reward for punishing others and punishing 
punished for rewarding them. But I, I saw that very quickly, and, and that was wonderful. That's, all, that's really the, the textbook operating in real life in front of your eyes. Amazing. What do you think makes a discovery catch public attention? So, for instance, when you, when you published your paper with Tversky in Science in 74, that was a very famous paper. But some papers make it into the public domain and some papers don't. Do you think it's, it's often just chance? We were lucky, as well as skillful, in adopting a particular method. And the method was to embed the problems that we created inside the text, which turned the readers of our paper into subjects. But they discovered that they were making mistakes that they would have thought themselves incapable of making. Now, if we had described the same material as experiments done on, on, on undergraduates, the readers would have been completely unimpressed because undergraduates are known to be feckless and so on. But when they found themselves making mistakes, that really caught their attention. So clearly the success of that paper was in the medium, at least as much as in the message. The same message presented as a routine set of experimental findings using the same questions would have been useless. It was setting up the question in a specialized format so that there was an instant for the reader to be a subject that did the whole thing. Now, you may ask, why don't other people do it? You know, why were we the only? And the answer is straightforward. There is no other field of psychology in which you can use that method. So we were lucky to be working on a topic in which a method was available that had universal appeal. And a lot of our success was due to, you know, to the exploitation of an opportunity that was completely unique. It probably is quite a good message for everybody to know that if they want to get a message across, they need somehow to involve the subject more in what they're trying to tell them. You're absolutely right, but it's so much easier to do in some fields than in others that it's largely a matter of luck whether you can communicate your fear or you cannot. So um, all these discoveries made you very famous. What are the disadvantages of being famous? It's embarrassing to say there aren't any really. You know, it's at least if it doesn't go to your head, and I think it didn't go to my head, if you can keep the attitude that this is more than you deserve and that you're just, you've just been very lucky in your life, which was relatively easy for me because the work that made me sort of important was done collaboratively and I could not have done it alone. So that protected my head from things getting to it, from success getting to it. But there is no obvious downside to being admired. If you can cope with it and it, it doesn't make yourself important, then it's all to the game. 
I suppose you might be a little bit constrained by people's expectations of you sometimes. I never felt that, really. I have always always felt quite free to tell people I have no idea. And, and I have done that often enough to know that this is quite often the most popular response you can give. People really like it when you tell them you have no idea. And that's very liberating. It's pretty rare, actually. Now you mention it. People should try it. They will discover that it goes over remarkably well. That would be, I think, a perfect point to stop. But I just want to ask you one last question, which is that many people listening will have, um, maybe the majority of people listening, will have been in lockdown, will have been, will now be very uncertain about what is coming, will have lots of decisions to make. Do you have any advice, general advice for people about making decisions in times of uncertainty? I do not have advice. Behavioral science has advanced to the point that it does have something to contribute to the debate about about how to introduce the lockdown, how to ensure compliance, and so on, how to minimize uh, the stresses associated with that. So, I mean, when I say I don't give advice, I certainly don't give advice to individuals, but but you know it's professionally interesting thank you very much indeed for this call it's been a great pleasure you have just heard nobel prize conversations a podcast series with adam smith by phil tinterland for nobel media the producer of this episode was siri von malmborg i'm fanny harjestam music by epidemic sound Make sure to visit the official website nobelprize.org for more in-depth content. Thank you for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast. Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.